0: Ayn Rand, founder of the philosophy of objectivism and author of best-selling novels like Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, claims that humankind's greatest virtue is rationality, our ability to think. It's the primary variable that sets us apart from the other animals in the animal kingdom. As challenges and inefficiencies of the past have manifested, we rise up and figure it out. The world has always had its challenges. The list is endless in our day and age. Have faith that someone is working on them. My question to you is, what are you working on? What are you trying to solve? As you may have concluded, that is the topic of our show today, solutions and answers to challenges. My guest is America's Money Answer Man. Hey everyone, this is Patrick, and welcome to the Well Standard Podcast. This is episode 12 of season three, and my guest is Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the
1: principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season
2: three, Property. So Jordan, thank you so much for spending some uh, some time with me this morning. I'm excited to have you on. Welcome. Welcome. Great to be with you, Patrick. Appreciate it. So Jordan, you have one of the most impressive resumes, I, I guess you can say, in relation to personal finance, investing, and so forth. And it's spanned multiple decades, multiple market corrections, rebounds. And so I'm assuming you've probably heard and seen it all. So, so why, why don't you just maybe give the, you know, give the listeners, or the audience, an idea of your background, how you got this personal finance and investing bug. And how you've kept the bug going, because going through .com, or even 1987, 1987, then .com, then 2008, 2009, what was the bug initially? And then what keeps you going?
1: Well, I went to uh, Amherst College undergraduate the Columbia School of Journalism, where I majored in economic uh, reporting there. Soon after that, went to Money Magazine, where I was for 18 years. And that was in the glorious 80s, when you know, it was all the hot mutual funds, and everybody's trying to make lots of money there. So I saw the boom. And I saw the bust, matter of fact, the night of the 1987 crash, I was on Nightline with Ted Koppel saying, we're not going into a depression tomorrow, which is basically the line that they want. I said, this is a market event, not an economic event. And then I saw the boom again in, in the 90s and the dot-com crash and boom again in the mid-2000s and then the 2008 crash. And now the last few years, we've had an incredible boom as well. My mission has just been to help people Navigate these very difficult waters in the investment world, but everything else as well. I help people, and we're going to talk about this, and mortgages, and credit card debt, and insurance, just all kinds of things. So I've been doing that for about 40 years, actually, going through a lot of different cycles up and down, and just love to help people and answer their questions, do podcasts like this. I've got my own show called The Money Answer Show. I'm on lots of regular radio shows all the time. So it's just been my mission and passion from the
2: beginning. So, as I mentioned, you've probably heard of every product and strategy and idea in the book. So how have you come to conclusions personally, especially the conclusions you talk about and solutions you talk about that are viable, that have a good degree of certainty and would help to sustain your level of credibility?
1: Well, you're right. I mean, when I was at Money Magazine, there are all kinds of things being pushed at us all the time. And you have to kind of vet through these things and see what works and what doesn't. And there are things that do work. I mean, a lot of people are so overwhelmed by so many choices that they end up doing nothing, Patrick, and that's not going to get your head. I mean, if you keep your money in a savings account, checking account, CDs today, you pretty much earn zero. And that's not keeping you up with the cost of living. Your your purchasing power is being lost kind of silently by having your money earn nothing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't kind of realize that. Officially, inflation's maybe 2%. I think in the real world, it's much higher than that, actually. You see what's happening to tuitions. They're going up 6 7%. I mean, dramatic increases there. Healthcare costs going up dramatically. P- healthcare premiums are going up dramatically. Taxes are going up, both property taxes. And now the after-tax cost of housing is going up because the tax deduction has been limited mm-hmm. to 10000 for both property taxes and state income taxes. So in high-tax states, the after-tax cost of housing is soaring dramatically. Gasoline, and oil is up. So there's just a lot more inflation out there than I think most people officially recognize. And therefore, you have to have your money earning something to be able to at least keep your purchasing
2: power, if not gain some on that. Isn't it interesting? Just the conversation around uh, inflation that could be a show by itself, because you have the a lot of things that are going down in price, whether it's TVs or automobiles, and and then you have I mean, computers. But then you have things that are offsetting that. And typically, they're the ones, the things most controlled and influenced by government. But anyway, we won't get into that one. I mean, the things you talked about, you buy them once every five years, every 10 years, a computer or a car. But your everyday
1: things like tuition or gasoline or food, those are the ones going up, healthcare.
2: So yeah, I agree with you. It's just a lot more inflation in the system than people talk about. Yeah, my wife showed me something last, last night. She's from Mexico originally, in the process of their elections right now. And the prices have more than doubled in the last like six years. We often don't pay attention to other markets, but you know inflation is uh, is rampant everywhere, not just the u s in the
1: emerging markets mexico i mean venezuela the,
2: <laughs> the, yeah. the, the money
1: is completely worthless basically yeah. but Turkey and South Africa and Argentina, their currencies have plummeted against the u s dollar which means that everything is more expensive for them. So inflation is way up there in all those kind of emerging markets, And it's really painful because their dollars, their debt is denominated in dollars. So as the dollar has been rising, it's getting more and more expensive for them. So yes, I just think that's a theme that
2: there. there's much more inflation in the world than the official numbers will tell you. Yeah, and your point was to invest instead of keeping your money in a bank account where it's actually losing value, right? So figure out ways in which you grow that wealth, but do it in a, in a sustainable manner. I'll
1: give you an example. Would that be helpful? I'll give you an example right yeah, now. Absolutely. Uh, something I'm involved in is called the Secured Real Estate Fund. Uh, the website for that is securedrealestatefunds.com. It's a way of getting an 8% yield over a one-year time frame, And the net asset value stays at $10 a share. So it doesn't go up or down as interest rates have been rising people losing money in bonds. Mm-hmm. But in something like this, as interest rates rise, it doesn't really affect you because it stays at $10 a share net asset value. They lend money short-term to commercial real estate projects all over the country. It's a new concept, which is called crowdfunding. You've heard of that. And yeah. this is a crowdfunding fund. The SEC started approving these things in 2016, technically called the Regulation a Regulation A-plus fund. But what it means is the average person can get into something, in this case, a minimum $5,000, that in the past would have been like 100 million or something for a big pension fund. And they can get an 8% yield paid monthly. They can either take it or reinvest it mm-hmm. inside an IRA, outside an IRA, had a good track record. And one of the things that's unusual about it is they actually get a profit sharing distribution as well. So the projects that they fund, when the projects sell, the developer shares some of the profit with the fund, gives it 80% to the shareholder. So last year, the actual return was 87 so far this year, it's been about 8.4. So there's a way without having the volatility of bonds, you can get an 8% yield as opposed to zero, basically in a savings account or a checking account these days.
2: Maybe you can expand on you know, some things I try to talk about often when you come to a, an opportunity that's worth sharing with your audience. Because I too, I've seen lots of opportunity in that crowd space fund. We had a company on here a couple of years ago uh, Fundraise, and they spoke at a, like an online event that we did, and they, you know, they were in DC, were some of the pioneers to getting that, you know, that reggae actually done, and they have a, just a tremendous platform. So I see tons of opportunity there. But looking at an idea, right? In this case, it's real you know, secured real estate funds. It's also getting a specific return and so forth. How do you go about looking at an opportunity and realizing that an idea and a product is one thing, okay? The execution is another. Because you have great ideas out there all the time, but the people behind it, the systems behind it, the business behind it typically jack it all up. So how do you that go about sense. like looking at an opportunity like that and determine, wow, this is a company that has reliability. They have a mission. They've proven things historically. I mean, how do you go about doing that? Got to look at the
1: track record. In the case of the secured real estate funds, the fund managers who make the real estate decisions have been doing this for 30 years have a long, long track record before they ever did this specific fund. I, mean, I think it's like $150 million in projects they've done. So uh, actually, I talked to one of them. He has an 1,100-point checklist before he'll do a deal. <laughs> He's seen every mistake everybody's ever made, and he makes sure they don't make it again. They check out the underwriters of the uh, project very carefully and make sure the project makes sense and the finances. Are just, and they also hand the money out in draws they don't kind of give them all the money up front and then say come back in a year they say okay put the foundation in we have to inspect it okay then they make the next one so there's a lot of kind of safekeeping and also they diversify across the country both geographically and by different types they're not putting it all in one thing they'll do some apartment buildings they'll do medical offices they'll do student housing they'll do assisted living so it's diversified both geographically and by types the fundraise I know about, it. my understanding of that, it was like individual deals that you can
2: do. So- yeah, and they have portfolios now too. Yeah, they started out with individual deals and that's kind of where they got they got in the door with uh, the SEC and and they spent tremendous time and energy, but they were right around the corner in, in DC, but they right. leveraged their parents' big development company that's been around forever. And uh, yeah, started individually, but then got to the point where they were linking up with different markets and, and portfolio. I think that makes sense. You want to do a diversified
1: portfolio. So if something goes wrong with a particular deal, it doesn't hurt you. Part of a bigger portfolio. So that diversification makes sense. So there are definitely options out there. But the point we're making is you don't have to be sitting there in the bank earning nothing while your cost of living is going up. Those are two examples that can hopefully help some of your folks.
2: Let me go back to just something I was curious about. You know, as you've Receive probably thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions of questions. Maybe tens I, of thousands, yes. What are the more common ones that, that you get that is, that is kind of agnostic to the market or the period of time, whether it was 80s, 90s, 1000s, or today? Getting out of debt, that's a big one. I mean, we are in a debt bubble right now. The big four,
1: mortgages, credit cards, student loans, and car loan debt are all soaring dramatically.
0: It's astronomical.
1: And people just or don't know how to get out of debt. So that's an area that I've specialized in. The latest book I did is called Master Your Debt, where I go into all this in some detail. So that's an area that I can really help people in. Maybe I'll just start off with mortgages, which is the biggest debt that people have. They don't realize that if they do it right, they literally can pay off a 30 year mortgage in about five to seven years or so on their existing level of income. Mm-hmm. This is what's generically called mortgage equity optimization. And it just transformative to people. (laughs) What a difference in their life. You have a couple who's 35 whose mortgage is paid off by 40 instead of 65. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that going to be so much better for them? And even more so today, now that the new tax law means that there's limitations on mortgages and you don't get the deduction you did in the past. You want to pay those mortgages off as fast as you possibly can. So maybe I'll just do a brief explainer of how mortgage equity optimization works. It's not something most people have heard about. So, what you do with a traditional system, you have a thirty-year mortgage. You make the same payment for thirty years, and you keep your money in the checking account, earning zero. This system works really well for the banks. right? You give them your money for free, and you pay them tons and tons of interest. With all the interest being upfront loaded, in the first ten to fifteen years, you make very, very little progress on the principal. Okay, so that's the existing system. The mortgage optimization system reverses everything. Your money is working for you instead of the bank. You use a home equity line of credit, HELOC as they're called, which is a liquid line against your house. You put money in. You can take it out whenever you like. You keep your income in the HELOC, pushing down your principal every day. HELOCs are based on what's called average daily balance. How much do you owe today? So say you had a $50,000 HELOC. You've got a paycheck for $1,000. You put it in. You now owe $49,000 instead of 50 dollars So you're paying interest on a sl- lower and lower balance all the time. Then you pay your bills out of the HELOC. And the point is your money every day is pushing that principle down. And then you kind of combine the HELOC with the first mortgage, what I call the blended strategy, and you pay the first off. Let me just do a very oversimplified example, Patrick, of how this might work. Okay, Say you had a $300,000 home and you had a first mortgage of $200,000 on it. Okay, You would go and, and at a good rate, say at a 4% rate, something like that. You would go get a HELOC for maybe $50,000 would be an example. You just open it, it's free and clear. You write a check on the HELOC, $50,000, towards the first. So now instead of owing two hundred dollars on the first, you owe one hundred and fifty dollars on the first and fifty dollars on the HELOC. You get your money in there, you pay that HELOC off after over, say, a year or so, $50,000 down to zero. You then do it again. So instead of one hundred and fifty, dollars you owe $100,000. You pay it off. Do it twice more. After four years, your first is paid off. You pay off the HELOC in the fifth year. You are now mortgage-free. That's a dramatic oversimplification, but that's the idea, is every day your money is working for you instead of the bank. There's a free website, by the way, you can actually model it for yourself to see if this would be appropriate for you, which is truthinequity.com. And you go on there, they do what's called a personal profile. You put in your income, your expenses, your home value, your mortgage, and it's going to say, based on what you're doing today, it's going to take you 28 and a half years to pay off your mortgage based on the numbers you just gave us, it's going to be 5.3 years, whatever it comes out to be. And then they show you step-by-step how to do it. Three things you need to make that work. Got to have positive cash flow, more money coming in than going out. Got to have equity in your house. And you got to have a decent credit score, 680 or higher to qualify for the HELOC. And I bet the vast majority of your people are going to have those three things. So literally they can save tens of thousands of dollars in needless interest and 25 years or so off their mortgage. So that's a very powerful strategy, probably a lot of people have not heard about it because the banks are certainly not going to tell you about that one
2: no, and you know banks offer product, rarely do they offer strategy, and you look at say the primary expense people have in life, and it's their housing right and it's interesting I mean especially today, there are some ways in which you can analyze whether home is worth buying or is it better renting and obviously it's all based on the circumstance, but right now, in most markets. Based on just finding a place to live, it's arguably less expensive to, uh, to rent than to, to buy. Because right. when you buy, of course, you have to come for the down payment, which means that money can't be invested. So you have a cost there. Uh, but then you also you, know, you also have maintenance and, uh, and upkeep and insurance and taxes right, that you're responsible for. And, and so sometimes those payments can end up being actually more than what a rent payment would be. It's interesting kind of where people look at their housing. And I would say housing to me, okay, you want to optimize the economics of it, but economics shouldn't always determine or be the leading influence. Because I did that and I got my wife really mad at me for several years. I actually did it twice. And so the idea is like, there's an emotional decision, there's a financial decision, right? And that's where, you know, an emotional decision often drives that. But when it comes to the economics, that's still vital. And so the way in which you acquire, I think, is important, but also the way in which you manage your mortgage and also manage how you uh, manage your cash flow is also vital.
1: And the economics have changed because of the tax law in a major way, particularly in the higher tax states. So you're right. So not always, but in many cases, renting does make sense, particularly if you want to move. So many people go from one job to another. You don't want to be tied down to a particular place and have to sell your house into a bad market. Yep. So a lot of people get stuck that way. There's some people still from 2008, 2009 who haven't been able to sell in bad market. Now there's good markets, Seattle and San Francisco and Austin. You know, there are places where the market's doing well, but prices are so high. If you sell and you have no place to go, <laughs> so
2: housing is a big issue. A lot of people don't deal with correctly. You're right. Yeah. So looking at, so I want to go back to just a few things. So obviously your housing, that's a strategy. Money in a bank is another strategy. Debt is an, is something to be conscious of. But talk about mindset when it comes to money and finance, as opposed to strategy, because I've seen a lot of the things that you're talking about right now, I've heard about before, I've seen certain programs, and I've seen some succeed and some fail, but it's rarely the result of the actual product or service. It's right. typically the result of the actual person executing properly. So talk about how you address those concerns and questions that people have, or maybe they don't even know, they're even recognize that they're the problem, right? right? And so how do you typically approach that idea or that situation?
1: So I did a whole book on this topic called Master Your Money Type, where I divide people into six kind of financial personalities, understanding what your personality is is gonna help you make the right decision, or at least understand the decision you're making. I'm not gonna go into all of them in all detail, but the six t- types are strivers, high rollers, ostriches, squirrels, coasters, and de- desperados, what <laughs> they call them. So it kind of came out of how your upbringing was, what your parents were. You might be the same. You might be the opposite of your parents. If our parents grew up in the Depression, they're going to be squirrels. They're going to be very kind of fear-oriented, penny-pinching, worried about everything, not wanting to take any risk. Yep. In general, the baby boomers have grown up in prosperity. So they tend to be coasters or high rollers even. That's part of the mindset is to understand the way you look at money. And when you're dating somebody or going to marry them, understand what their money type is. You don't have to be the same money type, but at least it can avoid a lot of conflict if you kind of know where you're coming
2: from on the way you look at money. So I look at, because I agree with that, and there's ways in, in which you can, there's, aside from your book, there are ways in which you can determine that what that mindset is. And I would say if, if you're happy with your finances, then there's no real need to change your your mindset but if you're unhappy if things aren't unhappy if things are not working what typically is the basis of shifting from maybe the ostrich to uh to the striver? or is money mindset just static and you just have to deal with that the rest of your life
1: well you're going to have a predominant
2: one based on yeah. your upbringing
1: but i say be the best you can be be the best squirrel you can be <laughs> you know if you're going to be a squirrel you don't have to be an uber squirrel i guess you might say and Get out of your risk tolerance a little bit. Because, as we said before, if you keep your money in the bank earning nothing, you may feel safe as a squirrel, but you're losing purchasing power. So, kind of push the envelope, maybe not in your normal level of comfort, so you can do better in these things. The debt desperado is too comfortable with getting into debt. You know, you go to a casino in Las Vegas and there's ATM machines. People are taking money out at 18% to put on the tables. It just drives me crazy. But that desperado mentality. So, you've got to have. A kind of a
2: counterweight to your normal money type, I guess you'd say. What are some books that you've read or mentors that you've had that have formed your, you know, maybe your original financial philosophy? And then talk to us about how it's evolved over the years and, and who you are influenced or pay attention to today to kind of get an idea of where things are, what opportunities are, where things are going in the future.
1: Well, certainly Peter Lynch was a very affordable one back in the 70s and 80s. And picking stocks of companies you know very well, and he did so well with that. That was certainly an influence then. More recently, I like uh, Rick Edelman. He has a book called, called The Future of Money, where he talks about all the new trends uh, that are happening, whether you like them or not, and you can have them work for you or you can have them work against you. Robotics, cloud computing, 3D printing, artificial intelligence, biotechnology. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different things. They're happening, and... Mm-hmm. can get run over by them or you can have them work on your behalf. So that's been a kind of influential thing. He actually has got an exchange traded fund called the Exponential Technologies Fund, symbol XT, which actually has in it about 200 of the companies that benefit from all those exponential technologies. So there's an example of how you can have it work for you. Because a lot of people don't know these things are coming and their jobs are going to be disappeared out of robotics or artificial intelligence, they don't know what hit them. So that's a a recent influence that I think has been very helpful.
2: What are some of the topics you've been discussing consistently on your show recently, the Money Answer Show? Other ways of getting out of debt. I mean, we talked about
1: paying your mortgage off faster. Let me just do some of the other ones if that would be helpful. (laughs) Car loans. A lot of people have big car loans, bigger than they can really afford, and they don't realize they can refinance those car loans to much lower interest rates or change the maturity to a level that's going to bring their car loans down. There's a free website, myloangen, G-E-N, myloangen.com. And you go in there and you put in how much you owe on the car, how many more months you have to go, what your monthly payment is, the interest rate. And then it gives you a little dial that you can choose what your payment's going to be, based on the interest rate or the maturity. So say you're paying $500 a month now, for the next three years, and you're finding that too much to handle. Say you moved it out to six years Maybe it goes down to 250, so it makes it more affordable. The the new thing now is that these car lenders are putting a device in your car which literally can disable your car while you're driving along the highway if you don't make your payment. So that's given them courage, I guess you might say, to make a lot of subprime car loans that in the past they wouldn't have made. Now they disable the car. They know where GPS, they can send the repo man and take your car right away. So that means a lot of people have gotten car loans they wouldn't have gotten in the past, particularly subprime car loans. So there's a resource that can help you do better with your car loans instead of typically what you're going to get from the dealer.
2: I want to ask about what you see as the future of lending and finance from a lending standpoint, because I look at you know some of the trends, especially in insurance, where you have you know these startups that are placing sensors in phones or in cars mm-hmm. that you know, determine how fast you go, determine if you brake hard, determine if you go over certain speed limits based on the area. And that's how they determine your insurance insurance rates. Right. And going into lending, I think subprime was hurt because of a number of factors, both housing as well as cars. And so looking at some of the technology and optimization in which they're keeping people disciplined, actually making their payment. What are you seeing there? Because I would say there's still business loans that I analyze that are just, people don't know how to calculate what an interest rate is. And so they think they're getting a good deal on a, on a 20% business line of credit or 15% car loan. What do you see as the future as far as lending is concerned, but also consumer awareness when it comes to knowing that they got a good deal on a car or got a good deal on a loan or a credit card or whatever?
1: Well, the the Credit Card Act of 2010 supposedly made for more disclosure, so people kind of know what they're getting into. You pay on a credit card and you pay the minimum, it'll say right on your statement, it's going to take you 32 years to pay it off at this APR. So, I mean, hopefully that's made a little bit better. Let's just talk about small business loans for a bit, because I know you have some small business owners as part of your followers here. That's an area where there's some good things going on and some really, really bad things going on. I'll just talk about the bad things first. There are what are called merchant cash advances (MCAs), which basically they take over your credit card receivables and they take fees out every day. And the interest rates can be like 400 percent or just some unbelievable That's amount. Insane, yeah. Some uh, of them are but insane. But they don't call it an interest rate; they call it a fee. Yep. But the result the is a or A fee, yeah. And so I would avoid. And there's last I heard, there's about 600 billion dollars worth of merchant cash advances out there. That's insane. It's what I call the payday lending of small businesses, basically, because they get on this kind of treadmill and they get cash in a day, unsecured, taking fees and you need another loan to be able to pay off the past one. The same thing is happening to small businesses that was happening before with payday lending and consumers. So that's what I would say would be the bad way of doing small business lending. There is a better way. There are these clearinghouses now that will help small businesses get legitimate loans from new kinds of sources, not traditional banks, uh, like hedge funds are willing to invest in small businesses. There's actually a website that can help people, which is called corporatelendingsolutions.com. And at that site, they have accounts receivable financing, payroll financing, equipment financing. Uh, there's just lots of different ways of getting financing. And they will vet you as a business owner, as a potential borrower, and then present you to the place Whether it be a hedge fund or uh, some kind of alternative organization, we can get decent interest rates—six, seven, eight percent—revolving lines of credit if you're a decent business. So there's a website that can help people: corporatelendingsolutions.com. And I would avoid these merchant cash advances, which are just killing a lot of small businesses.
2: Yeah, and people don't really—they're not aware of it because they use factoring rates of one percent or two percent, but they don't disclose time frame and frequency in which that percent is charged.
1: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) There's a loophole. In the Dodd-Frank law, Mm -hmm. the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, uh, has jurisdiction over consumers, but not small businesses. And so that's how these MCAs are getting away with murder, as far as I'm concerned,
2: because CFP
1: doesn't really have jurisdiction over these
2: MCAs. Yeah, and I think some car loan programs fall into that, too, because you see some very similar ways in which those are structured as you do with merchant lending.
1: Very much so. so. Another, on the positive side, I know you deal a lot with insurance and life insurance and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, one thing a lot of people are not aware of, Patrick, is being able to sell your life insurance policy mm-hmm. into what's called the life settlement market and get literally hundreds of thousands of dollars that otherwise you're going to get nothing if you let the policy lapse. Mm-hmm. Now, just as we talked earlier about mortgage optimization, the bank will never tell you about that. In this case, the life insurance company will never tell you you can sell your life insurance policy for potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. They would much rather that you let it lapse, you paid them premiums for many years, you take out whatever cash value is left, and they're off the hook. So this is what's called life settlements. So just as a simple example, say you had a policy worth a million dollar death benefit, and say you're 70, and maybe you've got a heart condition or some kind of medical condition, you could potentially sell that million dollar policy for like, $300,000, something like that. You sell it to the hedge fund or various other institutions. They pay the premiums. And when you die, they get the million. So they're going to get a big payoff. They just don't know when. So the older you are, and frankly, the sicker you are, the more you're going to get for that policy. But that can be enough to fund people's retirements and make a huge difference in their lives that the insurance company is never going to tell them about. There's a website for that too, which is fundinglife.com. And what they do is they put together buyers and sellers. You would be the seller. Of a life insurance policy. And right there, I've just given your listeners potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars they didn't know about otherwise.
2: Well, this is, it's a topic that I wanted to talk about the economy and and what you fall as far as economics. I would say these are, you know, whether it's life settlements and life settlement market, or I would even say reverse reverse mortgages fall into a certain category that may not be applicable to the listeners. I would argue that because I look at where the demographics are and we're on the cusp of, of having a very old population right. incapable of working, but also very ill-prepared when it comes to their future and potentially a longer life expectancy than they anticipated. You know, most states have enacted a what's called a filial law, which essentially puts kids, the children of parents, on the hook legally for their expenses. And so if you have assets that are exhausted, before, you know, maybe they use state funds or even Medicare, kids are on the line as far as taking care of them, even, even if it's an estranged child. So I would say kids are seeing their parents' age and recognizing that there is going to have to be some help associated uh, with them, whether it's in financial matters or or whether it's care facilities or the long-term care because of that incapacitation. That's right. where, you know, a lot of the, the life settlements, if it's a expiring or a term policy or an expiring universal life policy. Those are ideal for settlements. But reverse mortgages, I would say, had a stigma in the past, but fees are coming down. They've Many gotten better. are adopting that, which is making it a little bit more affordable.
1: They are. And I mean, those are the two main assets a lot of people have, their homes and their life insurance policies, and they don't realize they can get cash out of both of them. On the reverse mortgages, they've made it stricter now, which is a good thing, meaning you have to prove that you can pay the property taxes and insurance whereas in the past it was like people's last desperate effort and they would default anyway so yeah. but once you can show you can pay the property taxes and insurance you can get a reverse mortgage and then you take that assets and you're going to pay off your forward mortgage and hopefully whatever you've got left you can either pay off credit card debt or other debts or invest it hopefully to produce income for you uh, a website yeah, and that's
2: why I would look at kids and kids you know, there may be a paid off house and there might be a, a policy that they could pay out in the future to them or the house can be transferred to them through a will, through passing passing away. But that means they have to come up with all the money right now to care for their parents, right? Or care, right. Whether it's a care facility, whether it's uh, in-home care, whether it's just transportation, whatever. I mean, kids are on the hook for that, you know, for that. Very expensive. Very, Very. expensive. It's, yeah, and it's just and yeah. that expense is growing.
1: There is a website by way called reverseloanchoices.com which is an objective site to look at all the different possibilities with reverse mortgage. So in the right circumstance, you have to be at least 62 years or older. The older you are, the more money you're going to get. You'll be able to get roughly 50% of the value of the home, something like that. And you don't have to make payments. If you do make payments, it's good. But if you don't have to, the money, the interest is accruing and down the road, when you either sell the house or basically a person dies, they would collect what you, they paid out in the first place, plus the accrued interest. Yeah. So in the right circumstances, so the two things we just talked about, reverse mortgages and life settlements can help a lot of people. A lot of people, Patrick, have gotten to retirement without having saved almost anything when it comes down to. I think the latest numbers I saw, 40% of the people receiving Social Security retirement benefits, it's their only source of income. They've not saved a dime. So <laughs> those are and two aspects. Though, of and, and,
2: and we don't need to get into this topic today, but you know, even those that have saved some, I mean, I think over 60 years old, the average retirement account is like almost $200,000 which seems like a lot but then if you look at monte carlo simulations it's nothing as you stretch distributions out over a long period of time so it's there's a dilemma right now and it's and i would say it's concerning to me i don't know how it's all going to play out but in the end i would say kids that are preparing for themselves and trying to gain financial education and be more responsible with their finances it could be totally disrupted by the lack of preparation on on part of their parents. Very much so. And, and the kind of the middle generation are being hurt by
1: that, the parents needing their money and so on, and the kids because the student loan debt is just so huge that it's, I think, something over 50% of the kids graduating each year are going back and living at home again. You thought you had an empty nest. That was a four-year empty nest, and now what I call the boomerang generation keeps coming back at you Loaded down with student loan debt, the average person's graduating about thirty-nine thousand in student loan debt. People in the middle, (laughs) they've given money to their kids; they don't have time to save for themselves. And now the parents are coming back. You've got the boomerangers, and what I call the parents—the reverse boomerangers—the parents moving back with the kids. So it can be. Let's just talk for a moment about student loan debt, if we can, because it's a big issue for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, I and I want to use the the context as because I want to segue into the economy too, but I want to use the context as student loans are not sustainable. I would say credit card balances, not sustainable. Car loan balances, as you mentioned, not sustainable. And you have this big kind of glut in the sense of debt. And it, what's the way out? And maybe you can, you, know, you can talk about that when it comes to, uh, to student loans, because I think that is a very touchy subject.
1: Well, it is. It's currently about 1.5 trillion in student loan debt outstanding. The average person is about 39,000 in debt. Every graduation season, we add about 100 billion <laughs> in new student loan debt, just staggering. So what they can do, they can consolidate it. If they got a whole bunch of different federal loans at different interest rates, they can consolidate into one. There's a website for that, consolidatecollege.com. And the other thing they can do, a lot of people don't realize you can refinance your student loans to typically in the two to 3% area instead of five or 10 or much higher rates if you have private loans. You would combine private loans and federal loans into one in the typically two to 3% area A place I recommend there is called Credible, Uh, their website, credible.com forward slash money answers. They know it's me that way. You get 200 bucks off your first payment, and there's about 10 different lenders that will offer you different kinds of deals, some of them fixed, some of them variable at different interest rates, but the point is you have one loan instead of many that can help you get that student loan at least under control a little bit. You can't make it disappear because of the bankruptcy laws. You cannot discharge student loan debt in bankruptcy. That and IRS debt. Do you see that changing? No, I don't. If that changed, nobody would ever make a student loan again because people would skip out on their student loans a lot. So it's unfortunate, but it hangs over you. The delinquency and default rate has soared on student loans. It's up to about 20% these days because people just can't handle the amount of student loan debt. They
2: just can't pay it. But it doesn't go away the way, say, credit card debt would if you go back. So let's talk about the economy. I would say, you have a lingering generation that is coming to the realization that they haven't necessarily prepared for retirement adequately and right. are staying in the first longer than they have anticipated. Right. I would say as you grow older, especially in our economy, there's less efficiency associated with working and providing value and so forth. And you're also having the opportunity cost because younger people are not getting into the workforce that could potentially make it. The business more efficient, right? And obviously, there's variables that you can argue against that, but ideally, that would be the case. Yeah, like you said, you have people working two, three, four jobs, and yeah. you still have the levels of debt going up. What are you, you know, going back to 2007 or 2008, or for you going back to 2000, what are you seeing right now that you saw then? But maybe what are some things that didn't occur then that you're seeing? Because I would say that the economy, banks, Lenders, Wall Street, they learn lessons about derivatives. They learn lessons about lending. They learn lessons through all the different booms and busts of the last couple of decades. Okay. But you always have that funny thing about human beings, which is they, it's like the gambling mentality. You make a bet and you win, right? Now you're like, oh, wow, I'm going to take even more risk. I'm going to make another yeah. bet. And you win and you keep making another bet. And, but in the process, you get sloppy and sooner or later the house collects, right? So right. what are you seeing right now within the context of that statement?
1: I don't think people learned, or well, maybe they learned, but they've forgotten the message from particularly 2008. I mean, that was people getting into their way over their heads in mortgage debt, mortgages they should never have taken on or should qualify. I think that's better now because the Dodd-Frank rules have made it harder for people to get mortgages to get themselves into trouble. But still, you see a lot of fix and flips and people doing speculative real estate today. That's a game that could uh, could come to an end if interest rates keep rising. As we said, credit card debt is over a trillion dollars at very high interest rates. People are way over their heads on credit card debt. We talked about student loans going, car loans. So all four of them are going up dramatically. So I guess people have forgotten when times are good, as they are relatively now. People forget the times that were bad, and they get and the banks are willing to extend them the rope to hang themselves with. What it comes down to. If we just talk about credit card debt for a moment here, if you're in that circumstance and you've got a lot of credit card debt at high interest rates, two things you can do. Get lower interest rate credit cards. A free website, guide to creditcard.com, all the best deals you can get there. And nonprofit credit counseling, they will combine all your debt into one payment at a lower interest rate, typically 6-7% something like that. My favorite place there is called Cambridge Credit Counseling, cambridgecredit.org is their website. So they've already got deals with Bank of America and Citibank and Chase to get you rates you couldn't get on your own. And it's a discipline. It's what's called the debt management plan, a DMP. You make one payment a month, they pay the creditors, you can get out of debt. You need the discipline to want to do that. That's what happens to a lot of people. They just spend too much. Particularly what drives me crazy, Patrick, is on consumable items, a cruise or a nice dinner or something that's gone and you're paying interest on it a month later.
2: You don't even remember what you ate. That's not a good use of your money. That was the actual first job I had. Uh, actually, I got it when I was a senior in college. Is at a a center like that where we potentially uh, there was a nonprofit arm, uh-huh. uh, but then there was a sales arm, and that's where I realized that there were. And this was back in two thousand three, two thousand no two thousand four, and I realized like people have big issues when it comes to uh, when it comes to money. And it hasn't changed. I mean, we're 14, 15 years later, it's still the same. And that's where I would say it's the combination of using strategy, but it's also the human behavior side of things where if you're in the situation, it's not necessarily a debt consolidation or a refinance that's going to do the trick, right? It's one of the variables. But the other variable is to obtain some level of financial education so you don't make the same mistake twice. But often what happens, I mean, the reason why we're in this, this issue is because I think banks got away with with murder in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine because right. they propagated a lot of the derivative markets and they propagated a lot of the t- uh, different loan programs and also just took advantage i would say took advantage of people in a in a sense and right. they got a bailout, got bailout right left. right <laughs> they got a bailout and then I was part of that. I personally guaranteed some stuff with a, a partnership that I actually formed this company with and got hammered, and I realized how much power they have right? To get a judgment on you, garnish your bank accounts. These guys have it dialed in where they can make your life miserable and force people into bankruptcy. And, you know, and I would say right now it's evidence of that. I mean, Wells Fargo is just one of the staring us in the face uh, examples. And so it's one to recognize and understand, right, what your options are, but it's another to essentially have a mindset and a level of education that helps you to make the right decisions going forward after you make the most of the situation as it exists presently.
1: I agree. And education is a big part of it. And people go through school and they learn all about Greek philosophy and German music and Etruscan pottery and all kinds of wonderful things. But how to do a budget and how to pay your mortgage off and invest, all the things that we talk about all the time is like a foreign idea. In my money types, those are the ostriches. It's like, I don't deal with money. It'll take care of itself
2: somehow. That's the unfortunate part. And I I look at just, we're not a perfect, there's no perfect system, right? There's always these ideal systems and politics, you know, there's nothing that's ideal, regardless of what political party says, the political party says. But in the end, I think we have enough experience based on what's occurred in the past to recognize just where are the pitfalls with our financial behavior, our investing habits, our savings habits, our purchasing and and consumer habits. And there's ways to live a a pretty amazing life these days. And so Yeah, one of the things that I always love to talk about and do is before you do anything, question everything. Even if it's something that's so mainstream, it seems like it makes so much sense. The actual questioning of it, okay, and the understanding of it, I think opens a person's mind to really kind of engage their senses. Because I think people, you know, know intuitively what to ask when it comes to what they do here, what they do there. And that's where a starting place is. But I just look at where we're at as a as an economy, as a society and There's just a lot of red flags for me. But at the same time, it could keep going. Keep going another 10 years. who, Who the heck knows? But it's making good habits is what it comes to. And that's what you do. And that's what I do. Help people get
1: into good habits. Getting out of debt and not getting into it in the first place. Having investments and savings that are working for them. Making the most of their assets. We've talked about real estate. We've talked about life insurance. You make relatively small moves. And it can have a big positive impact. In general, I like to say I like to live a positive compounding life instead of a negative compounding. Positive is the money you produce is producing more money and you're getting a compounding impact. Negative compounding is you pay the minimum on your credit card and the amount of interest you owe is rising all the time. What a difference in your life if you can get the right habits to do positive compounding instead of negative compounding.
2: Well, Jordan, thanks so much for your time. This has been an awesome conversation. I know we I actually have a landing page I want to tell people about if that's okay. Yeah, that's where I was going to go to
1: next. Great. So there's a landing page I've created specifically for your people, which is go.moneyanswers.com forward slash wealth standard. And they'll see follow up on some of the things we talked about. I've got a free monthly newsletter they can get and see all the different resources I have at moneyanswers.com. Videos, I've got a YouTube channel, I've got a blog, I've got a newsletter, all kinds of things. We've just touched the surface on some of the ways I try to help people do better with their money.
2: Well, Jordan, thanks again. This has been, uh, like I said, a very valuable conversation. And thanks for all the resources that you provided. We'll make sure all those are listed on the show notes as well. But again, thank you for your time. We'll have to do this another time. Very good. Thanks so much, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Take care.
1: Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.